So we've had a lot of fun the last few weeks. This is not going to be one of those fun sermons, sorry. Uh, And so I want to run the risk of starting with a painfully obvious statement. Sin is bad. And if you're in doubt, sin is really bad. But I don't think we understand that. I don't think we understand how foul the smell of human rebellion is before the throne of Almighty God. I don't think we know that sin is offensive against God's very nature. I don't think we truly grasp how deserving our sin is of God's anger and wrath. Just wrath against sin. So I start here. Because I think many of us have thought and many still probably do think that what Jesus did was a little bit extreme. Well, there probably had to be another way. There's got to be some way around the suffering and the death. There's got to be an easier way. Wasn't there a peaceful way? Couldn't God have just snapped His fingers like Thanos and it all disappears? He should have. He told Moses, I can destroy you all and make a new nation out of you. And that's what we deserved. But He didn't. I think the problem, our big problem, is we think, we think too little about our own sin. We love God's grace and we presume too much upon it. It is a great thing. But are we sobered and broken over our own sin? And at the same time, we think too little about God's righteousness. We think too little about His holiness. That he can't bear to and shouldn't have to look at sin. We don't think enough of the putrid stain of sin against God's spotless character. That he hates it so much so that every sin requires a death sentence. And not just any death, but a slow painful, eternal death without end. This is the problem of sin. It is not a light thing. Sin was the problem pretty early on. It didn't take long before the one limitation put on man in the garden was broken. And the promise of death was realized. Death has always been the consequence for sin, and still is. Death has always been the end of of humanity, because humanity's problem is sin. We're dealing with a broken humanity under Adam. That's why we need a new humanity. But the problem of sin cannot just be brushed away or swept under a rug. cannot just be removed because God is also just. God shows no partiality. God punishes and gives every just punishment for sin. He would never let wickedness go unanswered and unpunished. Every one of us whose heart aches for injustice and oppression and sin are right to do so 
But God would never let any sin go unpunished, even yours. It's easy to look at everyone else's sin, but we look that hardly at our own. And the only right covering for sin is blood. Because biblically, blood symbolizes life. And in order for life to come out of death, life must cover death. There must be an atonement. There must be a covering by blood. This is why blood is needed. We're going to see this in our study in Hebrews in chapter 9. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It is impossible. Every time an animal was slaughtered in the tabernacle and in the temple, there was a reminder, you are sinful, you deserve to die. You are sinful, you deserve to die, but this animal will die in your place. That has not changed. This is why we trust in one lamb and not lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb. This is a very morbid intro and hopefully it's gotten your attention. It's supposed to be. I want you to think soberly about this, but thankfully this is not the end of the story. Like any good workout, any of you have been to the gym or you know the physiology behind exercising, you have to break muscles down before you can build them back up. This is what the gospel does, and this is what we're going to do. We need to break down what you think is your own strength so that you can be built up stronger in the one who becomes our strength through his sacrifice. This is going to be a mental, spiritual, and physiological exercise. And so last week, we looked at Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, everything that Israel had been expecting, and more that they tried to ignore. And it's interesting is Jesus did not correct him. By not correcting him, he gives agreement with the statement. But what does this mean? What does it mean that he is the Christ? What is the Christ's purpose? Do they understand that rightly? That's what we asked last week. I read that long passage from the Psalm of Solomon for a reason. What was the conception of the Jew at the time of Jesus? And in Peter's confession, did he see Jesus fully and rightly? Or was it partially? Was his vision clouded? So we're going to look at very, or excuse me, three very important verses. We're going to lean into these because there's a flow here, but there's also great lessons to be learned from each one of them. So in your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Lord, train us to keep our minds set on you. Forgive us when... We are so consumed with the things of man that we place ourselves before you and above you. Forgive us when we are so so short-sighted. 
love our own comfort and complacency and control. That we would do anything to see our plans come to order and resist yours. Lord, I pray that you work in us this morning. Your spirit teach us, convict us, guide us. That we would not take for granted the sufferings of Christ. We would not take for granted our sin. We would learn from Peter. We would submit to your will. And we would praise you for the sufferings of Christ. Because it is our righteousness. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to start with the first words here in verse 31. And he began to teach. This means that this was, in, this was the, the, the main topic of discussion. This was now Jesus' focus in teaching. This, this went on. He began to teach. And in Matthew it says, from that time he began to teach. This is not incidental that when Jesus says you are the Christ, Jesus now begins to teach them about the Christ. It is telling that the first detail about the Christ It had been easy to talk about the kingship and the priesthood and the prophetic nature in which he speaks and the kingdom and all these things that he's been teaching them all along. But now, once this proclamation has been made, you are the Christ. Now is where the blinders are going to begin to be removed. We need to see who the Christ is. Jesus wants them to see that. And as we saw last week in that Psalm of Solomon that was written a hundred years before the birth of Jesus, hopefully it represented what the Jews thought at the time. They had all these grand ideas about the Messiah. He's going to save His people. He's going to speak the Word of God. He's going to dash all of the enemies from Jerusalem. But no note of suffering. And this is where Jesus begins. And so we've got to give the disciples a little bit of grace here. Uh, One, as humans, we love the path of least resistance. We don't want to hear about suffering and difficulty. But let's be honest. If you've been walking with Jesus up to this point, we look back with hindsight. We know about the cross. We know about his shed blood. We we know about forgiveness of of sins through him. But this is the first time that that they're hearing it. And so if your hero, the one you're following, you're looking up to, you're, you're leaning in on every word that he says, tells you he's got to suffer. He's going to be rejected by your religious leaders. He's got to die. It is an understandable human response to be a little troubled by that. And so we'll, we'll, we'll give them grace there. And you know, put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. I mean, this is shocking. They were expecting the Christ. We saw this early on in the Gospel of John. I think we found the Christ. He's in Nazareth. Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. They knew there was a Christ coming, and he was not going to be insignificant. He was going to be something great and powerful, so powerful that all his enemies would be destroyed, and they got that part. There was something that had to come first. We'll get to that later in a moment. So I want to break down these details in this verse. Let's say we're handling three verses and we're going to spend a little bit of time on each. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must. And before we break down the terms here, we have to deal with must. Unavoidable. Without question, the Son of Man must. It is essential to understanding the Christ. You cannot understand the anointed of God without suffering. The Son of Man must. Because without suffering... Forgiveness and thus salvation is impossible. Must. Peter's the lawyer of the group. Speaks loud, speaks first, tries to wiggle his way out of things. Uh, We'll get to him in just a moment. But Jesus leaves no wiggle room here. The Son of Man must. First, let's deal with Son of Man. We looked at it last week. I'm not going to go over everything that we did. We, We opened up Daniel 7. Jesus' favorite title for himself is both divine and human at the same time. The only one to stand before the Ancient of Days, the Father on high, is the Son of Man who is given all glory and dominion. This Son of Man who will reign forever, he must suffer. This is where it gets tough. We don't like sin, we don't like suffering. We don't like difficulty. So I want you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah 53. We read this earlier in our corporate reading, but this is one of the most important texts in the Old Testament. And I want to walk you through how what, and it's not going to be on your screen, because I want you to open your Bibles. If you don't have one, there is one in front of you. So he must first suffer many things. I want you to see what he will suffer. To the T, what Jesus explains walks through Isaiah 53. Starting in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. In just a moment we're going to see that he's rejected by the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. The suffering that he's going to endure and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was, respo- he was despised and we esteemed him not. Sound like Jesus' last week of life? The triumphal entry, as we're going to see next week, is not long before they're shouting crucify him and spitting in his face and beating him. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah prophesied that the same servant who promised comfort to people in Isaiah 40 They would never leave them in Isaiah 43. Must also suffer. And he didn't just suffer for no reason. This is not just empty suffering. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He suffered with a purpose. We sent him there. He suffered for us. If you are ever tempted to think lightly about your sin, 
and shudder at the thought of the cross. Do not separate the two. There is no cross without your sin. It is your sin, my sin, my wickedness that sent Jesus to the most gruesome and painful death that humanity has ever dreamed up. Our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. Rejected by men. Now when he speaks of this list here in Mark 9, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Basically, he's describing the Sanhedrin. All of the important who's who among the Jewish men, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, made up primarily of Pharisees and Sadducees, always jostling for power, but they will come together for this. It was scandalous to think that the religious leaders, okay, Jesus, I know you've had your, your, your run-ins with them. I know that they've confronted you to your face, but to kill you? Really? This is, that's too far even for them. This is, this is scandalous. This, these are the, the shepherds of Israel. This is not through a military overthrow or some major inter- insurrection, but a strategic political attack systematically undermining Jesus' ministry and planning for weeks to come and driving this angry mob. This is why Israel needed a new shepherd. Because this is what their shepherds were doing. But they must do this. Just like He must do this. And they weren't just going to oppress Him and afflict Him. They were going to kill Him. This is the next step we see in Isaiah 53. So he was oppressed. He was afflicted, verse 7, by the Jewish leaders, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, he is going to his death. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We, we know that Jesus didn't try to have a theological debate with them. He was silent as he was slapped and beaten and mocked and spit on. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. And as for His generation, what were they thinking? What was this generation thinking? Then the question comes, who considered that He was cut off by the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of My people? Who would have ever thought that this quiet man would be stricken for the sins of My people? How do we know he was supposed to die? He was truly dead? God leans in in this prophecy through Isaiah. And they made his grave with the wicked. Not just that he died next to wicked men, but he died with the wickedness of men. He who knew no sin became sin. And we know... The next line fulfilled with Joseph of Arimathea and with a rich man in his death was put in his tomb. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Dead. Killed. For sin by oppression. The cross is offensive. 
1 Corinthians 1.18, and this will be on your screen so we can look at it quickly. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. If you don't have eyes to see, this is just stupid. God Himself is going to be put on a cross and be tortured and be weak? That's not the king I signed up for. But to those of us who understand our sin, those of us who are being saved who understand the cost of salvation, it is the power of God. Because only God could use something so gruesome to do something so awesome. He died. Truly died. Truly put in a grave. With the wickedness of man, but he must die. But that's not the final say, the final answer. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why did he put him to grief? When his soul makes an offering for guilt. This is atonement language. The blood covering of the, 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 the sin guilt of man. But there's a glimmer here. This is a dead man, but look at the language about someone who just died. For he shall see his offspring. There is a promise of life. There is a promise of sight again. He will rise again. He shall prolong his days. And the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see again and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with his transgressors. Yet, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for his transgressors. The cross to us is a symbol of death. But thankfully, if you are in Christ, it is a symbol of death for your sin. It is also a symbol of life because Unlike the Catholic crucifix that still has a suffering, weak, helpless Jesus on it, our cross has no Savior on it. Ours is risen and alive. Amen? Amen. And He makes intercession for us. Amen? Amen? We have the full picture and praise God for that. And if they would have spent some time on Isaiah 53, they would have seen this. The problem is... is this prophecy was not always read. And most times now, it escapes the reading in most synagogues and temples across the world. They don't want to hear this message. This is uncomfortable. Let's strike it from the record books and just wait for our conquering king without the suffering. As we're going to see, you cannot have both. And so as Jesus unfolds, and I wish I was there, I would have loved to see Jesus unpack all this. And so... One day we'll be sitting at his feet, and I want to hear him tell this again and again and again. Because now, for the first time, he speaks plainly. Story time is over. I'm going to speak to you as adults. He speaks this plainly because this is too important for them to miss. Okay, you want to confess that I'm the Christ? You get it? Do you really? Do you really understand who I am? Well, let me tell you what it means that I'm the Christ. I must suffer many things. I must be rejected by men. I must die, but I will rise again. 
Now he's going to speak to them adult, as adults. But as we'll see, Peter is not ready for adulting. Uh, I love how people just turn nouns into verbs, but we're going to make sense in this case. Peter, as the spokesman of the group, is ready to stand up boldly and stick his neck out to be put right back in place in a moment. But look what Peter does. After listening to this, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of Man standing before him, teaches you about suffering, and your first thought is, uh, Jesus, let me take you over here. Kind of like the parent who wants to discipline their child and doesn't want the rest of the grocery store to see it. Uh, We're going to take you over here, and we're going to put you in your place. How arrogant of him. The same language is used as when Jesus began to teach them, Peter began to rebuke him. It's not one time. Peter went in. Peter was was trying to walk this back. He's trying to correct Jesus. No, Jesus, that's not the end of the story. That's not what I've heard. And let me tell you all the reasons why. Matthew adds the detail. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. It was unthinkable for Peter. But it was unavoidable for Christ. We can be tempted to just move on, but I want to get inside Peter's head a little bit because we're getting inside our own heads too. What was so hard for Peter? As we've said, they were expecting this nationalistic Messiah. He failed to see the importance of the suffering servant. I'm sure he was aware of it. Was he taught it? Was he thinking about it? Was he ignoring it? We don't know. But what Peter and the disciples wanted was they wanted the crown without the cross. And it wasn't possible. They wanted restored Israel now. They wanted freedom from Rome. They wanted the glory of Solomon again. But they didn't know that he is restored Israel. And he would reign greater than than Solomon or David. However, he could not reign unless he had a people fit for himself. This is why he did not come as a conquering king. Because he needed a redeemed people. A king needs three things. Authority, a place to reign, and a people. As they were, as we were before the cross, we were not worthy of him. We must be remade. A new humanity is made. A new people must be fit for him. And he's got to address the problem that we opened up with, the problem of our sin. And what Peter says sounds good. Lord, there's got to be another way without suffering. I won't let this happen to you. This is a grave error of man to think that we need to save God from himself. That if only God listened to us and checked with us things would turn out differently. This is what Peter's saying. I won't let this happen to you. I know better than God. Some of us have uttered those words. Maybe you haven't, but you have thought along those lines every day of your life. You think along those lines. I know better than God. 
I know I should be reading my Bible. I, I know I should be raising my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but this is more important. I know I should be broken over my, my sin and, and rejoicing in my salvation, but I'd rather watch Netflix. I know better than God. Honestly, when we look at Peter's rebuke here, and it's easy to point our fingers at Peter, but I want to challenge us for a moment. How far do we go to avoid difficulty? How far do we go to avoid discomfort? How often have we been tempted to rebuke Jesus? How often have we rebuked Jesus? Where we think He should do things the way that we thought they should be done. No, Jesus, this is too hard. Don't ask that of me. What's your plan B? We love positive Christian messages where everything turns out right. That's only part of the story because what happens when they don't? That's only part of the story. The gospel is good news. There's also a lot of bad news. We're in a sinful and broken world. People who hate God and He hates their sin. How often are we frustrated with God because He chooses the hard way even if it leads to our good and our growth, how often selfishly do we try to get out of it? How often are we only thinking about what's good for us? What if Peter got his way? Everything about that? What if Jesus listened to Peter? Okay, Peter, you're right. I won't suffer. Peter's still dead in his sins. We're still dead in our sins. What if we get our way? What if we challenge, when we challenge the difficult things that God has in store for us, that refine us and grow us, and we trade them for our own comfort? What blessings and benefits of the Lord are we forfeiting? What growth do we forfeit? You understand a sovereign God who is sovereign over all things. You understand that when you're on the mountaintops and things are good and you have sight over all the land, He's God then. And He's working then. But when you're in the valleys and you don't have any perspective, you can only see what's right in front of you, He's working then. But you know what's interesting though? Where do the plants grow? Where is there the most fruit? Are there any fruits on top of the mountains? You have great perspective, but there's not fertile soil. The fertile soil is in the valleys. The fruits grow in the valleys through the difficulty. This is where God teaches. This is what He does. Some of us, some of you, are too busy arguing with God, trying to find the path of least resistance, rebuking God for what He is doing in your life. There are things you cannot learn on the mountaintop. There's things you cannot learn when things are going easily. You cannot ignore your sin. You cannot ignore your need for a Savior. We must, like Jesus, be able to say, not my will, but yours be done. 
this is why Jesus responds the way he does. Verse 33. Peter rebukes him. There's a little discretion there. He pulls Peter aside or Jesus aside and rebukes him in private. But Peter, excuse me, but Jesus rebukes them before them all because he turns around and sees his disciples. They're watching. How is Jesus going to respond? And like a good teacher, like a good parent, like a good disciplinarian, he makes a public example out of Peter. This is not going any further than you. Your selfishness and short-sightedness is not going to spread. I'm going to make an example out of you, Peter. He's going to make a very stark example. Get behind me. Out of my sight, I don't want to look on your sinful face. Get behind me. You're not worthy to look into my eyes. Some of you are tempted to rebuke Jesus right now. Well, be nice, Jesus. It's not very loving. That's a little harsh. Is it? We're going to see why this is so fitting. The word Satan means adversary. Jesus says, get behind me, my adversary. Why are you confronting me? Matthew adds the word stumbling block. You've become a hindrance, a stumbling block to me. Why are you coming against me? Now let's break this down. Now the rebuke of Christ after calling him the Christ, is baffling enough. But it's not the disrespect that is most troubling, and it's not the disrespect that Jesus is addressing here. Get behind me, Satan. We'll address Satan in a moment, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. His short-sightedness according to the things of man By wanting Jesus to avoid suffering, to avoid the cross, the only one who benefits is Satan. Think about that. Get behind me, Satan, because if you want me to avoid the cross, you belong to him. And by confronting me as my adversary, you are working toward the cause of Satan. This is demonic. Satan doesn't want salvation. Satan doesn't want the recognition of sin. Satan doesn't want redemption. He wants you to be comfortable in your sin where you were dead. He wants you to be happy enough with the little bit of life that you are clinging on to that you won't fall before the feet of Christ. Satan does not want this because he knows that his defeat, his end is not long behind. He wants to hold on to as much power as he can for as long as he can. And if Peter was to derail Christ, it would accomplish Satan's purpose. This is why he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter is questioning and confronting the very plan of God to the benefit of Satan. Some people have remarked that maybe Satan came into him here or was truly directing him. We don't know what's going on in the spiritual realms at this time. But what we do know is that in this moment, if Peter got what he wanted, the only one who was serving would be Satan. 
This is Jesus, the Savior of the world, the loving guy who carries lambs around his neck, calling his closest disciple Satan. Still seems harsh, right? But I want to take this a little further. By trying to avoid the cross, you become a hindrance to the mission of Christ. You become a hindrance to redemption, to new humanity, to the true King of Israel, to the reign of the Christ. By ignoring or minimizing the cross, you place a stumbling block in front of others. There is no salvation without it. There is no hope without it. Jesus is condemning Peter, representing the things of man. The things of man put man before God. He's setting his mind on the things of man. And the things that exalt man are against God. Peter's acting as Jesus' enemy in this moment. That's why he tells him, get behind me. This is Satan's oldest tool. It's his only tool. To chase down truth or or lies with a little bit of truth. Because it sounds like it's a good motivation here. But you remember when Jesus was in the wilderness, he says something similar to Satan. Be gone, Satan. He banishes him. All Satan's temptations appeal to Jesus' humanity. That's what he does. He appeals to his comfort, his earthly security. Whenever you are most concerned with your, your own comfort, your own advancement, your own security, Satan is working. Whenever you try to minimize difficulty... For your sake, versus what brings glory to God, Satan is working. Are you more concerned with your own comfort than the glory of God? Are you too busy correcting Jesus because he makes things seem too hard or he would allow this in your life? Or are you saying, not my will, but yours be done to God be the glory? And there's always the, the, the question, but Why? And as many of our questions are answered in Romans 9, Paul tells us that what if God, wanting to show how great His mercy is, puts it up against His divine wrath? I want you to see sin in all of its ugliness and everything that it deserves so that you see how great my mercy is. Because what I am going to redeem you from is impossible any other way. And when I present you spotless and blemished and unblemished before the Father against the backdrop of all of your sin that was placed on the cross, God receives more glory than any other way. Amen. And so in our last couple minutes, I want you to listen closely as we think about what this means for us and what we understand and how we live. Listen closely here. The big lesson from this is you cannot preach Christ partially. If you try to remove or downplay suffering or the atonement or the cross, you are His adversary. You are preaching a different gospel if it does not include death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Satan's most powerful tool. 
is false teachers, well-meaning Christians who have a partial gospel that saves no one. Jesus loves you just the way you are. wants you to be happy, wealthy, and wise. Requires nothing else of you. This is why we confront and warn against false gospels. Why Paul warned against false gospels. Why we fight the false messages of liberalism. It says you can have Jesus without the cross. Without the resurrection. You can have Him without atonement. That's such a messy, bloody Old Testament thing. Jesus begins with, in order to understand who I am, in order to understand the gospel, understand that I must suffer. I must die and I must rise again because of you. And if you want me as your Christ, you can't have me partially. And if you want a rosy, easy gospel, this is probably not the church for you if you haven't seen already. Because I want to talk about the word gospel for just a moment. We love the word gospel. You can tack it on front of anything and make it Christian. It's gospel-centered this, gospel-centered this. The word gospel is a military term. The word gospel was invoked, we'll see it in the Old Testament. When there was victory on the, on the battlefield, someone would run to tell David, I've got good news. Gospel is victory over the enemy. Gospel is blood being shed so that more lives could be saved. Gospel is the good news being proclaimed by a herald who still got blood on his sandals because my king just conquered my enemies. Gospel. There is no good news unless there is a dead enemy on the battle, battlefield. And the gospel for us, there is no good news unless our enemy is dead. Unless there is blood that covers what wars against us there's no gospel without the blood of christ shed in defeat of sin and death and satan and everything under his control the atonement of christ is our battle cry we stand behind the cross in front of the cross boldly because it represents our covering from sin our king's victory over his enemies which are our enemies It is good news because the battle has been won. The blood has been shed. Praise the Lord. And in Christ, you are on the winning side. That is good news. Earlier we referenced 2 Corinthians 5.21. For him who knew no sin, he made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Anyone want to trade the righteousness of Christ for a more peaceful way? Anyone want to sign up for an easier life and give back Christ's righteousness? That's what we say when we minimize the gospel and remove the cross from the gospel. Remove suffering from the gospel. We must know how horrible sin is so we know how great our salvation is. So I want to leave you with Titus 2. What does this salvation mean for our daily lives? Remember I said, we're going to break down the muscles so we can build them back up again. There is good news, I promise. 
But the worst of the bad news is, the greater the good news is. How great is salvation we have? Verse 11 of Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is a far-reaching salvation. Every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is the grace of God. What does it do in His people? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age. There is an answer for the right now in the Gospel. The good news of Jesus' work for us is that we get to be pleasing to God. He has been pleased with us because of what Christ has done, and we, we live in a way that honors Him, not under obligation. And there's this tension of the already, not yet. In this age, this is how we live, but we are waiting for our blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came the first time for the cross. The second time, He's coming with the crown. And we, wait, we can anticipate and wait for our hope because what we have from the cross if you are in Christ, as bad as your sin was, His blood is greater. His covering makes you spotless before Him. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear judgment. We don't have to fear the return of Christ. Because in Him we can stand tall in His righteousness. We know that we are made pure. And this is our hope. We look forward to it. Through our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But how is it all possible who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works? He must suffer to cleanse us from unrighteousness so that we might be purified, that we might be His people, that He might reign over us a good and benevolent King forever, that we might be His people. Look at this last verse. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, the command to rebuke is back. But we declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. This is what we stand on. We don't rebuke Christ. We rebuke those who stand against Christ. We stand with the truth of the Gospel. We exhort one another. We encourage the saints. This is who you are in Christ. He's your hope. Live in a way that is pleasing to Him. Live in anticipation of His return. But we rebuke those who minimize the gospel and change the gospel. Let no one disregard you. If you are in Christ, this is your good news. This is your victory from the battle because your King is victorious over sin. And so, looking forward to next week, I'm going to take this a step further because there is a cost of salvation that costs Jesus' very life. But, Christ's death also demands ours. And if He laid down His life in, in the flesh, how can we expect to keep ours? I want to encourage you this morning. The suffering servant is your complete righteousness if your faith is in Him. But He also demands our complete allegiance. We'll see more of that next week. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you that you are so wise. As we read through your word, we are comforted and we are made uncomfortable. We are brought high by the good news of the gospel, but we are first brought low with the realization of our sin and what it cost our Savior. Lord, may we always be a people who sits under your word, whether we love to hear it or we need to hear it. Lord, we praise you. Only you could do all of this for your glory. Only you could make graves in the gardens. Only you could bring the dead to life. Only you could bring something new out of the ashes. Lord, it should break our heart that our sins nailed you to the cross. But our hearts should be soothed knowing that that's where you left them. We should be encouraged that you took on our sin and gave us your righteousness. And we can stand before you blameless because of your character. Because of your perfect keeping of the law. Your perfect propitiation for sin, satisfying the wrath of God. The gospel is incredible if we understand how bad our sin is. How amazing your grace is. How awesome our Savior is. What a great salvation we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in his name I pray. Amen.